This morning, we will be back in God's Word again, back where we have been for some time in 1 Peter. 1 Peter, so if you uh, have not yet, would you open your copy of God's Word to 1 Peter? Specifically, chapter 4, we're picking up where we left off last time. This will be a multi-part series in this section. We're looking at verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. So I think it is uh, safe to say uh, that most of us who have lived out our, uh, all of our time as Christians, whenever that took place when we became Christians, all of us who have lived out all of our time as Christians, that is within the United States, I find passages like this one concerning Christian suffering, and, and by that I mean suffering as a result of being persecuted for following Christ, we find these passages probably just a little hard to, to fully relate to. Uh, I do. I find it a little hard to fully relate to. I, I even uh, struggle with trying to to work through the text and, and to make it applicable to you and to me um, because most of us lack a great deal of experience in the matter of this type of Christian suffering. Uh, we, we, we certainly have some. I'm sure that if I, I spoke with you, you could, you could relate to me matters in where you have been persecuted and suffered in that way to some degree because you have chosen to follow Christ, because you're living for him. Would that be true of you? To some degree. So we have, you know, issues with our families, our unbelieving families sometimes. Uh, There's pushback, there's some struggle, some suffering, some real suffering, certainly for your employer, as you work in the world, in a, in a world that, in an empl- for an employer who may not be a believer, and there's employees who are not believers, you, there may be some persecution of some sort that takes place there. But again, um, not necessarily to the degree, at least here in the United States, do we suffer in this way as others have, others do in other parts of the world, and they did in the first century. So it's hard. It's hard, I think, for us to fully relate. So I get that. I understand that. However, what I've been expressing, trying to express again and again, is that that might very well change for us in the United States. And it could be. It could be in our lifetimes. As I've said before, I believe that we live in a uh, protective bubble of sorts within the United States um, because of, you know, our culture. But our culture is changing. So, again, just this is all by way of intro, but, again, trying to help you understand the importance, I think, of First Peter, even for us, even within the United States, uh, even though we may not suffer to the same degree, there is suffering, but it could increase. And, and if you so happen to be called by God to depart from this land into another part of our world, then you, you might really 
understand what it is to be persecuted for, for naming Christ and for living for him and for proclaiming him. But our culture is changing, beloved. If you think about it, why, why do we even have a bubble at all? Well, think about the stages. This is not exact, but just think with me for a moment. You know, stage one of the United States, you could say Christianity was the norm. It was the dominating religion of the land for the most part. So to be Christian wasn't odd. It was expected to some degree. You weren't in if you weren't Christian. You were outside. And, and that was stage one. But somewhere along the way, we moved to stage two where Christianity was one option now among other options. And Christianity was still thought to be a respectable option. But you know, there you might choose a different path and that's okay, too. But then we move to a new stage in our country's history where Christianity, to some degree, has become, among many, uh, thought of as an old-fashioned and foolish option. So we, we go from it is the choice to it is a choice to it is a foolish choice. I mean, only you folks who don't believe in science and haven't gone to college still follow Christianity. That's the, that's the thought. A bad one, a wrong one, but that's the idea. That's what's put out there. And with that, there, there has been a level of persecution, but it... It's more like, oh, look at that silly person still believing in that silly thing, that kind of thing, right? All right, it's foolish, but you know, I guess they need their crutch, their Jesus crutch, their Christianity crutch. Me, I'm enlightened now. I went to school. You know, I've been trained appropriately now. I've, I, I'm in the modern age. I've left all that old-fashioned thinking behind. But those silly people can do their thing. That's stage three. And, and I want you to think about this. In that stage then, if the thinking becomes that Christianity is no longer the option, no longer a respectable option, but a foolish option, then it's discredited in people's eyes, and it no longer has its ability then, at least within that kind of culture, to check, to put a check on all the other false doctrine and religion that tries to fill that void because we don't even check with Christianity anymore because we know that's outdated, that's old-fashioned. That's, that's stage three. But stage four, as those other false philosophies then are allowed to come in and fill the void and false religions become the dominant thinking of the land, then we move, which I think we're moving to, Christianity no longer just being a foolish option, but a bad one. A bad one. These satanic philosophies forced down the throats of our young people at secular colleges, and even before that, even in 
public schools, high school, these satanic philosophies, these satanic false religions, because that is what they are, look to destroy Christianity ultimately. And so now we're, we're moving into a new era where to be a Christian is it's not expected, it's, it's not an option, it shouldn't be an option, it's not just foolish, it's a bad thing. It's, it's in fact a hindrance to humanity's progress. I've said that to you. Beloved, that is, that is the way that Christianity is spoken about, not among the people of God who have been, had their eyes opened to the truth, but to those who still remain in darkness and are held captive to do Satan's will. They say of Christianity, it's a threat to our well-being. Think about this, beloved. Think with me just for a moment about where we're going. And, And all of this will lend itself to a place where we could find persecution for following Christ to be a more common thing, indeed a more severe thing on a whole other level that you and I have, have never really known. But uh, think about how much push there is to save the planet. Right? It's everywhere. We have to save the planet. We have to save Mother Earth. Now, uh, Christians are, are called to be good stewards of this world and of their possessions and of the land. Good stewards. But in Christian thinking, this place is going down. It's going down. And God will keep it just as it is. He'll keep it spinning. He'll keep it in its place. He'll keep it working. God will until he decides to take it down. So, see, I say that and immediately then, well, then obviously you don't care about saving the planet. Well, not like you do, because for you, it's a religion. For you, you've got to give yourself to Mother Earth. Well, then you are getting in the way of the progress of humanity. Well, then I guess I am. I'm not, but that's what they think, you see? So all of a sudden, Christianity and Christian doctrine and Christian theology and what Christians think and say starts to be looked at in a way that is evil. Think about sexual orientations. Our, our country, sadly, is moving towards and has been moving towards and really is there that if you don't embrace every sexual orientation under the sun, not just say, hey, it's an option, but now embrace it. Not tolerate it. Embrace it. Call it good. Then you then you're the problem. You're what's keeping us from moving to the next evolution of humanity. But I can't embrace it as a Christian because God calls these things that you call good, he calls them sin. You see? So am I getting in the way of humanity's progress? I mean, if progress means going further down the drain, yeah, I'm getting in the way of that by speaking the truth and standing for righteousness. When you consider the philosophies of today and the religions of today, there among many is a push, 
And you'll see this as well. If you're familiar at all with these things, you'll see them pushing and saying that, you know what? You know what the issue is? Well, we need to recognize as a humanity, and a lot of this junk comes right out of here, out of the great United States of America. But what we need to recognize is our uh, divineness. We need to help humanity realize its godness. And I'm not making up that term. That's the term they use, godness. That we are all one, all part of the one divine. No distinctions. No creature, creator distinctions in this kind of false, satanic philosophy. Christianity comes along and says, what are you talking about? There's a huge distinction, a huge divide. There is God creator here he is, and then down here created, you and me. Sin divides us. You need Christ to reconcile us, you see. Well, you're getting in the way. You're, you're not helping people achieve their greatness. No, I'm calling on people to recognize the greatness of God. You, you see? So... In the first century, going back now, because I believe what's happening is we're returning back to a pagan culture. Slowly, surely, we're kind of moving back that direction. Listen, God could come in, cause a revival, and could spare us from that for another, well, however long he wants to, 100 years, 200 years, and we could, we could go to a day where Christianity becomes uh, the religion of the land, that could happen. So that could happen, beloved. I don't know what God has planned. I'm just saying, looking at it now, it looks like we're, we're on our way this way, back to Rome, back to first century paganism of sorts. And in the first century, get this, get this, Christianity was brought into that pagan culture, okay? Christians were called by those who lived in that culture, they were called atheists, yeah. Now, we reserve that term for a different a person that doesn't believe in, says he doesn't believe in any God, who simply rejects God, right? But they refer to Christians as atheists because they rejected the gods of Rome and said there was only one true God, and so they called them atheists. It was meant to be uh, a negative term towards them. Those people don't even believe in our gods. There's something seriously wrong with them. And if they don't believe in our gods, how can they be a part of our culture and our community? Persecution set in. So, beloved, if Christianity is someday viewed by the majority of our country and or, God forbid, our government, because they actually have the power and authority to really bring persecution uh, in a greater way, and it's viewed by them as being more than just foolish old thinking, but actually a threat. If that ever happens, as, as it was seen in the first century, that's exactly how it was seen. Christianity was seen as a threat. And that is exactly how it is seen today in other parts of the world. A threat to their, their satanic philosophies and satanic false religions. If that ever happens here where we live and dwell, then I think persecution for Christians will become more commonplace in our land and likely more severe, as I said, than it is now. And, and as that occurs, then I, I think uh, this book, this letter that we've been working through will become even more important 
for us. And having a good knowledge of it will be all the more important. This letter written to afflicted Christians who were suffering for their faith. So, listen up, beloved. Listen up, okay? Don't let the fact that maybe this is a little bit harder to relate to. You know, we're not talking about marriage. We're not talking about parenting. Those things, there's quick relatability. We're talking about suffering, and suffering specifically for one's faith. And there, there is a little bit of a disconnect for us. And so the danger is we just check out. Yeah, yeah, that's for another time. That's for someone else, not for me. It may be for you. And to some degree, it is for you. All of us, we have suffered to some degree for our faith. So, as I mentioned before, Peter begins this section with the word beloved. Beloved. It is a word that relates tenderness, compassion, affection, and care. And I think this section should be understood in light of that word. That there is a true tenderness, affection, and care in all of Peter's words here to these suffering Christians. And so as you read the text, as I read the text, let your mind think that way as we read these words. These are caring words. These are tender words. So to the text, 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. I'll read all of it. We'll only, again, look at a few of the things here. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So I say, again, tenderness, compassion, care. He's not like, you dummies, why are you so shocked? You know, that's not his approach. That's not his attitude. Don't you know, you're going to suffer. He doesn't take that approach. He's not, he's not that way with them. It's, it's kind. It's compassionate. Beloved, do not be surprised. 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. As we discussed in part one, I believe Peter's primary purpose in this section of this letter is he returns to a major theme of this letter one final time, that being Christian suffering, was to provide his persecuted and uh, troubled readers some much-needed comforts in their sufferings. Comforts, beloved, that would help them to persevere in their Christian faith. To remain steadfast to the Lord. That's what Peter's calling them to in, in these circumstances. To, to continue to boldly live, live for Christ, though they suffered for it. So he brings these comforts to them that, that might empower them and enable them to stay the course. To stay the course. So, 
We only really focused on this matter of surprise here. Last time, Peter said, beloved, you know, in this verse, he says, do not be surprised, as, you know, as though some strange thing were happening to you. And he begins by simply telling them, don't be surprised or bewildered concerning the persecution they were experiencing. They were, they were not to think some strange thing or something alien to the Christian life was happening to them. And I said this last time, I think that right up front is a comfort, is a comfort to them. How so? Well, think of it this way. When a Christian married couple is struggling in their marriage, and after seeking their pastor's help, they are told that, uh, which I've told many times to struggling couples, that troubles or problems in a marriage are not some strange thing. There's a relief on their face. Not like they say, oh, then I guess we'll just stick with our troubles. <laughs> you know, we'll just won't try to fix it. Not in that sense, but because I think that maybe some bad, you know, maybe one too many Disney movies, you know, where you get married and uh, it's going to be a beautiful and wonderful thing and you'll live, if you found the right guy or the right gal, happily ever after. And then they find out, whoa, uh, that's not exactly how it works out, right? Because you have two sinners living in close proximity to one another, and when that happens, there's bound to be some sparks. And so when they find out that, hey, okay, we're not strange. There's not something wrong with us. We're not doing something wrong. This is normal, all right? And then you begin to, to help them through that. I, I find the same thing, to, and they're comfort in that. I find the same thing to be true of when you're speaking to parents who, you know, before they become parents, they think in their minds they've got to get it all figured out, right? Because they've read all the books. So they read all the books, and they're going to raise these kids uh, without any issues that they've seen all those other kids have. And uh, so then reality sets in, and, and, and you come to them and go, listen, um, it is not out of the norm to, uh, to have some of this bad behavior. It's not something alien to raising children, even as you strive to raise them in a godly way, because they're little sinners, little rebels, beautiful little rebels. And so there, there's a, a, a sense of comfort that comes from that. You know, I thought maybe, what, is I doing something wrong? Does God hate me? I don't know, you know? No, he does not hate you. He loves you. He loves you. And he's going to, he's, let's, let's see how he can help you in this. Let's look at the scriptures together. And so you do that. But there's a comfort there. I think it's the same sense. Listen. And remember, these Gentiles had very, these are Gentiles who lived in paganism. And in their paganism, they had very little experience with persecution. Because that was it. That everyone did that. So they gave themselves to their gods, they talked about their gods, they mingled with their gods, their neighbors had their gods, everyone was, and everyone's comfortable and cool with that. There's no persecution, not for their faith. All of a sudden, they embrace the one true God and problems start for them. And they're told, this is the God, that all those other gods are no gods at all, that he is the almighty, the all-powerful one, and yet... These poor believers are taking it in, getting hit left and right. What is going on? You think about, again, trying to get into their mindset. 
In paganism, often, if the gods were happy with you, things went well. If the gods were unhappy with you because you didn't do what you were supposed to do, whatever that might mean, then things went poorly. So they might be shocked because they're here trying to live for this Lord and they're doing what they're, 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 they're walking according to his way. They're, trans, they're, they're, they're slowly changing over their life. They're turning away from their old ways, turning onto these new ways, walking in righteousness, proclaiming Jesus, and they're getting hit for it. What are we doing wrong? You're not doing anything wrong. Don't be shocked, beloved. Don't think it a strange thing. Comfort. And I said, like Peter's Christian readers in the first century, Christians in the U.S. might be surprised if persecution becomes commonplace in our country, right? They might be surprised as well. I mean, one of it is just lack of experience. We don't know it. We don't, we don't know it in this, to the same degree. So it would be a little shocking to, like, maybe having to lose your stuff, you know, more than just a, you know, a laugh at you or a, a roll of the eyes, which is, is, a, is a form of persecution. It is. But what if you actually uh, were told you're going to have to give up your stuff? We're going to take your home. We're going to take your car. You cannot work here. You cannot live here. You must leave the city. We're going to beat you. We're going to imprison you. Beloved, we don't, we don't know that. What if everyone in your neighborhood was mocking you, not because of the color of your house, but because of your profession of Jesus Christ, slandering you? All your neighbors speaking evil of you. And that was the reason why, because you believe in Jesus. So we lack experience in it, but again, there's also this false teaching, right, that uh, is prolific in our land. Uh, it's a distorted gospel in which Christ is presented as, as the key to earthly bliss and the solution to all our problems. That's how he's presented in this false prosperity gospel that floods into our televisions and stereos and on the internet and Beloved, Christ, Christ is the solution to our biggest problem. What's our biggest problem? Sin. He is the solution to our biggest problem, but following Christ in this world will likely add problems to your life. Hello. That's what the scriptures teach. So he eradicates our biggest problem, the one we need to be dealt with, and no one else can do it except him. But coming unto him to have that problem dealt with forgiveness and justification, redemption, salvation, all of its glory, the hope of heaven, eternal life with God, with that comes a host of other problems. But you know what's awesome? They're temporary. So our eternal problem is dealt with, but with that comes some temporary problems. They'll go away. Remember, beloved, it was Christ himself who said, in this world, he said this to his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
John 16, 33. Commenting on this whole section, one writer says this way, uh, says this, whether it is hostility toward the Christian's exclusive message, right? We preach an exclusive message in the sense that we say there is only one way to God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's only one way. There There are no other ways. There are not multiple options. Only one has fixed your problem. Only one can redeem you and save you and rescue you. Only one is king. His name is Jesus. Bow to him and find in him sweet mercy and grace and love. But there is only one. That's what we say, yeah? You better be saying that if you're not. You're confused or you're not a Christian. So we have an exclusive message. So people don't like that, right? The world doesn't like that. What about my way? What about your way? It's wrong. Who are you to say it's wrong? I'm no one. God says it's wrong. He's everything. People don't like that. They get upset about that. So whether it's hostility toward the Christian's exclusive message or their efforts to evangelize or their godly lifestyle, believers need to remember that hardship is a corollary to biblical faith. That just means that hardship naturally follows biblical faith to one degree or another. If you're believing and trusting in Christ, you can anticipate some problems in this world. You with me? But rejoice, he has overcome the world and your biggest problem has been eradicated. I would say not suffering is the exception, really, to the rule. And not experiencing persecution is the exception to the rule. And so we live in some sort of a bubble for a time for God's purposes. And that has been good because it's allowed us to to a time to, to freely spread the gospel without being, you know, pushed down, shoved down. But I think things may be changing Now, Peter, listen, he doesn't just tell them not to be surprised about suffering for their faith, but he also refers to this persecution there in the text. This is is where we'll find our next comfort. He refers to it as a fiery trial that has come upon them to test them. A fiery trial that has come upon them to test them. That's how he refers to this persecution that that they're undergoing this pushback from their pagan uh, friends, well, they were friends at one time, neighbors and culture pushing back against them uh, for their faith in Christ. So what is that all about? Look back at the text. It says in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. I like the way uh, the New American Standard Bible puts this section. He says, it says in that Bible, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. Don't be surprised at this fiery ordeal that comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. A more literal reading of that section which comes, this fiery ordeal which comes upon your testing, it reads like this. This is a literal reading. So, Do not be surprised. Literally, it reads like this. At the burning among you, occurring to you for testing. The 
burning among you, occurring to you for testing. What is that? What is, what is Peter getting at? One translation of the Bible refers to that as trial by fire. <laughs> trial by fire. Okay, so a little bit of uh, help here with the passage in understanding it. Burning. That word there that he uses that is many translations call fiery, it is burning. It can mean the process of burning, okay? Just the process of burning. It's a reference to that. So you think of fiery. Or it could be that it, it's the idea of uh, thinking, of, again, of suffering, but the idea of burning with pain, to burn with pain. It, it could be understood that way, and that's why the New International Version, or NIV Bible, actually translates this instead of fiery trial or fiery ordeal, it just says painful trial, painful trial. I don't think so. I don't think the idea is just painful. It certainly is painful. There's no doubt about that. They were suffering, okay? But I don't think that's what Peter's using. He could have used another word for painful instead of fiery or burning. Most likely, it's being used in the same sort of way that when he spoke in 1 Peter 1.7 about fire, it's being used metaphorically, metaphorically. So hold that thought. Okay, we'll come back to it in a second. So where's the comfort in, in this for these afflicted Christians? It's, it's here. It's in the fact that this fiery trial, we'll get to it in a second, what that might mean, comes upon Christians in order to test them. In order to test them. There's comfort here. Hold on. So how are we to understand that? To test them means in order to prove them and refine them. That is not at all very different from what Peter has already said in his letter in chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. So I think Peter is just kind of coming back to that thought again. Let me remind you, if you want, you can flip just a little bit to the left. Let your eyes look at 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. There it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Verse 7, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's, if you remember, we, we covered this section, but the idea is that just as gold is tested to prove its purity, it's put into the flames of fire, removing all the impurities that might exist to reveal whether or not this is true gold, pure gold, and, to, and get away all that is not from it so that what is left is just nice gold, proving that it is what it is or what someone claims it to be. In the same way, fiery trials are brought into the Christian's life to melt away all the impurities and to prove the genuineness, the genuine, see, I still have a problem with that word, the genuineness, I'll just stop there, of their faith, of their faith, to prove that it is real. How does that work? How does that work? And how, why is there comfort in that? Listen, God, one writer says, test the believer's faith to reveal its genuineness. The trials are not intended to destroy one's faith, but confirm it beyond doubt. 
Okay? So follow me here. God purposes and allows for persecution in our lives in order to test the Christian's faith, not in the sense of seeing if it will fail, but in order to prove to us, because God already knows, to prove to us who sometimes have doubts, to prove to us that our faith is indeed genuine. And in that process, he refines us and greatly strengthens our hope, as that is confirmed in our hearts, that it is genuine, it is real, demonstrated by the fact that as these things come into my life, I'm still standing here, I'm still proclaiming Christ, yet suffering for it. Fire comes, proves the truth of your faith, the reality of your faith, and that strengthens our hope in God and our great salvation, bringing us comfort, great comfort knowing that we know that we know that we are indeed his how do we know as these fires come into our lives we are still there standing it demonstrates the reality of our faith it does not destroy us but purifies us and proves us for our own hearts so let me quickly take you to romans 5 because we talked about it there, Paul speaks to the exact same thing. So let me just remind you of what was said in Romans 5 so you understand the, the true comfort that Peter is giving in this section here in 1 Peter. In Romans 5, verses 3 and 4, Peter, Paul says this, We rejoice in our sufferings. There it is again. What? Well, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Again, the sufferings the Apostle Paul speaks of here are best understood as the sufferings that are unique to those who are followers of Jesus Christ, to Christians. That is, sufferings related to being persecuted for following or living for Christ, as opposed to just sufferings that are experienced by all people in general, such as illness. It's not, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about being persecuted for one's faith, suffering as a Christian. We learned in Romans 5, 3, and 4, when we looked at that text, that when, when the Christian, as a result of following Christ, suffers, God graciously enables them to persevere, which means he gives them the ability to remain under those difficulties without giving in. The Christian does not fold. How? Because they're strong? No, because God is strong and lives within them. So they stand. Are, do they experience pain? Yes. Do they suffer? Yes. But they stand. And so this suffering brings about then an endurance or a perseverance. As one writer points out, we can never learn endurance without suffering because without suffering, there'd be nothing to endure. So how does one learn endurance in the faith? Suffering for that faith. And then Paul says that this endurance produces or brings about character. And quickly, the word there is better translated proven character. That's how the NASB translates it, proven character. That's a more accurate translation because the word means someone or something that has been tested and has passed the test. So then the idea is that the Christian that has been tested through this suffering 
endures or perseveres. They continue in their faith. Why? Because God is working in them and through them in the midst of this persecution. Consequently, they have their character proven, or you could say that their faith is proven to be genuine rather than superficial. How, do you, how does the Christian know that? Because he's still proclaiming Christ. He's still standing for Christ. He's still following Christ, even though he suffers. That's a demonstration that this faith is genuine, not phony, not superficial, which affirms to him that he is really his. Okay? Which enlarges and strengthens the Christian's hope and brings them great comfort. Another way you could think about it, this, is the Christian whose character has been tested and proven by enduring tribulation as a result of following Christ is made certain that they are not like the person described by Jesus in Matthew 13, where he speaks of someone who hears the word or the message of salvation and immediately responds to it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll take Jesus. I'll take him. I'll take him. So they walk the aisle, they all come forward, all thousand of them. Yeah, yeah, I'm in, I'm in. I want to be with Jesus, right? And then it says in Matthew 13, I'm just, that's an example of something that could be a superficial faith. They have no idea what it means. I'll take Jesus. Oh, heaven, that sounds good. And he says, yet this one who just immediately responds has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Demonstrating that he was never a bona fide, authentic, genuine believer in the first place. Because if he was, God would have caused that one to endure, to persevere. He would have strengthened him for that moment. Given him the grace that he needed in his moment of weakness, making him strong in Christ and demonstrating the reality of a genuine born-again faith. This fiery trial that comes upon you for your testing. So one writer says, suffering for Christ's sake proves and improves our faith. It improves and improves our faith. It does both those things. You think this is not just suffering, right? This is not just, this is specifically suffering for Christ's sake. So I can get this suffering to stop if I turn away from Christ. This is not like disease where there's nothing, you may, there may be nothing you can do about it. You just live with it. But in this case, I can see the attachment. This is specifically, I am, I am experiencing this because I am naming him, because I am following him, because I am proclaiming him. Well, I'm done with that, so I'm just going to stop him. See, the, there's a great temptation here, yet the Christian doesn't do that. The genuine believer in all of that, through the power of God, continues. He perseveres. He may, he may struggle greatly, but he continues on because God holds on to him. And that demonstrates to that believer, my faith is real, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Honestly, I think maybe some of our doubts is we just, it's never been truly, truly put to the test. So we wonder, but God brings this testing in 
not to crush, not to destroy, but to give that confidence to that believer that they, they are his, and he is watching over them and caring for them and protecting them. And what that means is all that God has said to them concerning their salvation is indeed theirs. It is true. One writer says, their sufferings are not a sign of God's absence, but his purifying presence. It's not as if, it's God, it's not as if God's gone and he's left the situation. These things have come into your life that God may prove you and purify you through this fiery trial. He will bring you through it, and you will be better for it. See, now, so you notice Peter hasn't said, hey, don't worry. Uh, it'll, it'll, I'm sure it won't last long. Peter has no idea. It could last a long time. There's a pretty hostile culture they live in. So he's not trying to encourage them that way. He's saying, no, you ha- I'm, here's your hope that even in it and through it, God is working to your good, and ultimately to his glory. And in that, you can find comfort. God has brought this thing. He's sovereign. This thing has come into my life, this persecution, but this persecution will not undo me. Not because I'm awesome or strong or a great Christian, but because God is great and strong and awesome and will bring me through it and purify me. He'll cause me to to truly see Sing that song, this world has nothing for me. We, you know, we come in here, we sing that, but I wonder, do we really think like that? Bring a little persecution into a Christian's life. He'll sing from the bottom of his heart. This world has nothing for me. His, his eyes will be fixed on Jesus Christ and his coming and his kingdom. And he will know that he is his because God has taken him through that fiery trial, and there he stands by the grace of God. He didn't depart. He didn't turn away like that one who comes, oh, me, me, yeah, give me Jesus, and then immediately falls away as soon as things get a little rough. But he stands. Therefore, the Christian need not fret or fear about suffering. So even as I say to you, even as I say, hey, listen, things could change. Don't let that create, cast darkness on your heart. Don't, don't, let, don't think, oh no, what kind of world will my kids grow up in? I don't know, but you have no reason to fret or fear concerning suffering for following Jesus because you know that we can, if and when it occurs, we can trust God. That's what we should teach our children to do. That's what we'll need to do, that we can trust God that he will accomplish his good and perfect will for us and for his glory through any persecution we might face. Comfort. Comfort. Will it be painful? Yeah. Will it purify me? Yes. Will it prove me? Beyond a shadow of a doubt. So it's not like, I'm not crazy. I'm not like, well, then let's go get some suffering. No, because it is painful. But I also don't have to freak out. I don't have to freak out. If it comes, it comes. It'll come according to God's timetable, his plan. He's the one that brings these things for his own purposes into our lives. For a time, we've lived in a bubble. I don't know how much longer. But our brothers and sisters all over the world, they're in no bubble. 
They know the truths of this passage. So one writer says this, we'll close with this. The readers are encouraged to see God's good purpose behind their difficulties, enabling them to grow stronger in faith and give more glory to God. And let me remind you, at the end of this, this little section is verse 19. It is, as I told you when we inter- I introduced this letter to you, it really is the key passage to the entire letter. But it sum- sums up everything that is said right here in verses 12 through 18. And there, Peter says, therefore, to his, his, these beloved Christians, let those who suffer according to God's will, according to his sovereign plan and purposes, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good, while still preaching Jesus, while still living for him, while still saying no to paganism and sin and unrighteousness and yes to God in his holy way. Entrust yourselves to him in the midst of your suffering because you can. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your word and Lord, uh, yeah, I, Father, I just pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that they would take these things to heart, that, that even though, you know, really, honestly, if we're being true, our, our lives are, are fairly, in this area at least, fairly uh, not difficult. I mean, we, we, we walk freely around this country. We, we're here. I'm publicly preaching. I I'm not worried about anybody coming in and, and hurting us. Uh, not really. That, it's not an immediate threat. I, I'm not going to have my house ransacked because I'm a Christian. I mean, that's just very unlikely. I'm not going to be thrown into prison. And yet, and yet, Father, that has been true for many of your pe- people throughout history. And even today, Father, we, con- we confess it's true for our brothers and sisters in other parts of this world. Father, I... I don't understand all the reasons you have kept us in this bubble. I'm, I'm thankful for it. I'm grateful for it. But, Father, if it were to burst, we have no need to fear. We have no need to fear. You are sovereign. These things happen according to your plan. And, Father, you even, you even take persecution and you use it for our good and your glory as you do all things. And we see that here, testing us in these fiery trials, proving our faith to be true, refining us through the process, helping us to shed our affections for this world and to turn our eyes and our hearts upon you and live for you with every bit of our being. Come into grips with the reality that this is not our home. Persecution does that in a way that nothing else can. So, Father, we... We need not fear. May our hearts not fear, but when and if it comes, and to the degree it comes, may we look to you, trust in you, not count it a strange thing, not be surprised, but know in it and through it, you will demonstrate the reality of our faith to us, and that will enlarge our hope and our focus on you and on the promises you have made to us. Thank you, faithful Father. Bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen.